Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Caroline, it is the 27th of July, but you wouldn't necessarily know it by looking out the window. Are you one of these people who's thinking, oh, what a terrible summer we've been having? Or are you one of those people like me who's like, I'm really glad I don't have to peel myself out of the seat because <laughs> it's so hot? Uh, I'm annoyed because it has been so rainy. But on the other hand, it's a new kind of environment. I mean, I'm a Londoner born and bred. I think that the weather here is so much muggier than it has been. And it's not just me looking at the latest um, Met Office report into the climate in the UK. It's just absolutely staggering. It's sunnier, it's wetter, it's warmer than it has been in previous decades. And they've got a big kind of future cast of where they think UK weather is going to be and that's all down to climate change. Yeah, look, now we're doing this thing where we're conflating weather and climate but we're basing this on a report from where the Met Office is looking at the broader trends which is what we define more accurately as, as climate but the, the report saying that temperatures that we saw last summer, that 40 degrees being breached in London, we all remember it very well, could be considered normal by 2060 and in fact might even be considered cool by tw- the year 2100. Last summer, the hottest in the country in almost 150 years. Uh, in 2022, every month except December was warmer than the average between 1991 and 2020. Rising temperatures causing mm. all sorts of of issues in this area too. Yeah, look, digging into that report is pretty staggering, right? They they go into the uh, the rising sea level around the UK, how that could play into more extreme individual weather events, you know, that, that is kind of climate change overall. They're talking about extreme temperatures in the UK actually accelerating more quickly than the global average, so that climate change is happening in Britain faster than it is elsewhere, which yeah, I think is really remarkable. Which is in important in the context of the political debate we've had over the mm. past couple of days, you know, with the by-election in Uxbridge last week, which, you know, was said to have been won by the Tories because of their opposition to the ultra-low emission zone policy, has led to Richie Sunak saying that he would stall environmental policies that directly cost consumers. This is something that is being debated in the political sphere, and many others are asking whether we can afford to be delaying any of this, given the broader situation. Look, I do think that the rubber meets the road, right? We always knew that those commitments were great, but there a lot of people said that the top-line commitments to 2030 and 2050 were not being met by, by kind of... A, 
an exact sort of roadmap as to how we get to net zero, the cost and how we actually do it in terms of vehicles and homes and, and factories. It's very, very difficult. And now you're seeing the kind of political fallout. And also just looking at it from the vehicle production side of things, there's been a lot of scepticism about whether, for example, we could meet the 2030 goal of no longer selling any um, uh, petrol or diesel mm. cars, of just selling EV vehicles in the UK. How do you do that if you don't have of the infrastructure in terms of charging. Yeah, part of the broader political debate we're bound to hear much more of in the run-up to uh, the next elections. That's one story that caught our eye this morning. We want to bring you details next of an exclusive Bloomberg story about how advisors to the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, are saying they're worried that the Bank of England might go too far in their efforts to bring down inflation. Sources told us the majority of the seven members of the Economic Advisory Council want the central bank to slow down its interest rate increases. The risk, as they see it, is that the bank may cause an unnecessary recession. Our senior UK economy reporter Philip Aldrich joins us now with the details of this story. Phil, can you just remind us first of all, who is on this council and what sort of influence do they have over the Chancellor? There, there are seven members. Um, uh, a couple of them were at the Bank of England until recently. Uh, there's a former, Karen Ward is a former advisor to a former Chancellor Philip Hammond. Um, and uh, um, uh, Rupert Harrison, who uh, was an advisor to George Osborne before that, uh, and then there's um, uh, there's other there's there's a few other economists and there's a businessman Jonathan S- Simmons. Um, but so there's so of, of, of the seven, I mean, there is there is as we understand it, a sort of overwhelming overwhelming or majority support for the principle that the Bank of England doesn't need to push as hard um, on inflation as uh, as markets think as as broader um you know city economists think and and uh, they they do worry that um we're now seeing a sort of turning point in the economy that looks like there's loosening in the labor market it looks like business activity is slowing down these mm. rate rises are beginning to have an effect um and if you push hard now again for you know really hard for another few months then you could push us into a recession when we don't need we don't need these extra rate rises. Yeah, I mean, what is their that's reasoning the thinking, there? Yeah, that's the, that's the thinking, Phil. What's their reasoning, though? Because is it the idea that the UK may be exceptional in terms of both the sort of inflation that we've seen, but then also the handbrake turn that the economy may make because of this series of rate rises? What, what do we think they are thinking about in this advice? The, the, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a difficult balance to, to strike, actually, because inflation is worse here. But the, what they're kind of, kind of looking to is they're looking ahead and they and you can see there's an automatic decline in the headline rate of inflation in coming months because of the energy price, uh, the, the sort of regulated energy price cap, which delays the mechanism of energy price falls through to the to, to households now that so you can see it coming but it's not in the numbers yet so you can see inflation is going to fall and that and you know the bank of england governor and others have said that once headline inflation starts falling the underlying pressure for you know people wanting inflation matching rate um, wage rises that's going to diminish as well because inflation is falling so inflation matching pay rises is are, are also lower so you and and the there are signs that comp- that companies are not putting their prices up as fast as they were last year. So 
you know, you've got, and also actually then there's the producer input price data, which is basically flat now. So all these input costs, there's no, there's no further inflation. In fact, for some, it's actually decreasing. So you, they can see that inflation is, is diminishing and they can see the risks of recession rising. And, you know, and, and it's kind of which bit do they, you know, what is the balance there? And, and, mm. and that's their, their reasoning is the balance is tipped to the, you know, it could be dangerous for the economy now if we, if we, if we push too hard on, on interest rates. Now, these are accounts of advisors to the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have repeatedly backed the Bank of England's approach in bringing down inflation. But does this perhaps open the door for a little bit more tension between the government and the central bank? Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, it's interesting because the, you know, just in June, Jeremy Hunt wrote, there was an exchange of letters with the governor. So Jeremy Hunt, in that exchange of letters, you know, said it was right that the bank should push relentlessly relentlessly against inflation. So the, the focus has been very much on the fact that um, inflation is too high and coming down too slowly. And at that point, all the data was moving the wrong way. And then we've had this one inflation print and these few indications that things are turning. Um, and, it, you know, they, they're, they're beginning to push, they're beginning to sort of indicate to the bank that, um, uh, that it doesn't need to go as hard. Will they be publicly critical will will there will tensions rise i think the tensions have have already risen because mm. because of the past inflation overshoot it, it might actually reduce the tensions obviously if inflation does hit the halving that rishi sunak is is uh, has made one of his priorities this year the halving of the headline rate of inflation um then it's easier for the bank of england the, the political pressure kind of comes off so in a in a way you could see this as a as a way in which you know that those kind of political tensions do ameliorate a little yeah perhaps but i suppose it all goes to this question around i mean the bank of england is independent and yet at the center of sort of so much tension and um and commentary and pressure from various directions so i suppose it makes it a lot more uh tricky perhaps for the bank of england again to kind of maintain its independence and, and clarity how much attention do you think they will give this sort of commentary um well so obviously these this is an independent committee of advisors to the treasury not to the bank of england and the bank of england has got its own independent uh, role uh there is obviously um you know I, there is like com- conversations that are held between the Chancellor and the Bank of England Governor, but there, there are links between the Treasury and the Monetary Policy Committee. There is a the Chief Economist at the Treasury sits in on the meetings at the Monetary Policy Committee. So there, there isn't like a complete separation. And obviously mm-hmm. policy at the Bank of England is set with the, within the context of the fiscal policy set by the Treasury. So, you know, there, there is a holistic picture here. So, you know, it, it, there is a degree of collaboration. There always is. So independent. You can overstate this kind of independence point hmm. a, a little. Um, I, you know, I, I will if the Treasury basically starts instructing the Bank of England uh, to to do things. Then yes, of course, it's 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 overstepping. And there was a little bit of that possibly in uh, in June last year when Rishi Sunak wrote a letter where he said he expects. 
the Bank of England to target inflation more uh, you know, aggressively. And at that point, they'd only be raising rates at a quarter of a percentage point at each meeting. And the subsequent meetings, they did a half percentage point and then a three quarter percentage point rise. So they completely transformed their trajectory of rate rises after they got given this kind of in the it's a public letter between Sunak at that time and Bailey. So the Bank of England did respond to that but that was that that is the official mechanism of public um communication between the the bank and the treasury so we might see a bit of that in the in the next letter that hunt writes which will be in september but this is a sort of uh, early this this stuff that's kind of come out of treasury seem is, is kind of an early indication yeah uh, absolutely the way the treasury's thinking and, and Bloomberg reporting. Really great to have you on the programme. That is Philip Aldrich, our senior UK economy reporter. Well, as we've been unpacking that reporting with Phil Aldrich there, at the same time, the Lords Economic Committee has actually been looking at the whole question of the Bank of England's independence, as it is 25 years this year since the Chancellor Gordon Brown at the time granted operational independence to the UK's central bank. So the Economics Affairs Committee has been holding an inquiry into the running of the Bank of England. And you and Potts and I have been discussing this with the committee chair, James Bridges, Lord Bridges of Heatley. Our inquiry is looking into how independence is working, not whether the bank should be independent. I think that 25 years on, it's a good time for us as Parliament to take stock. Um, Given the very significant role that the Bank of England plays in all our lives in the UK, and to look at really three issues, what the bank does, how the bank operates and how the bank is scrutinised and held accountable to elected uh, politicians in Parliament. And I think that those three questions are ones that we are trying to tease out. And obviously, over the years since independence was granted, the framework for independence has changed and how the bank, what the bank actually does. Uh, as well as how it's being held accountable, that has changed. And also we have seen, obviously, it goes without saying, very, very significant events take place. Most recently, obviously, um, the rise in inflation and subsequent rise in rates. And on the back of uh, a very large quantity of uh, QE. So I think that put all that together, I think it's a very timely moment for us just to, as I say, take a step back and try and answer those three questions. You have, as part of this, been speaking to many people, including the the Governor Andrew Bailey, uh, last month. I wonder, under the headline of your communication between the Central Bank and parliamentarians, what did you make of the evidence from Andrew Bailey when he spoke to your committee? Yeah, well, um, forgive me if I'm not very conclusive in what I'm going to say on any of these points, because we have now uh, got to the stage where we're mulling over all the evidence we've given, we've been given. Um, I would just say on um, accountability, I think that on the basis of the evidence we heard and were given, I think that a number of witnesses pointed to uh, gaps in the level of scrutiny and accountability that currently exist. Um, a number, and these these my my three buckets of what the bank does, how the bank operates, and how the bank is scrutinised and held accountable, interconnects. And here is one example: the remit of the bank has increased quite dramatically uh, over the years. Um, 
a number of our witnesses, including the governor, pointed to this in the way in which the chancellor of the day has extended the remit in various guises. Parliament has then legislated, and this has just happened, to introduce new objectives and what so-called have regards in the jargon. The question then this brings and raises is, to what extent is Parliament scrutinising and holding the bank accountable for its actions when it exercises its powers to meet these objectives? And that's something that I think that we'll be thinking about over the summer. You flag the extra responsibilities, many extra responsibilities given to the Bank of England, particularly by, uh, I think it was the, the coalition government a few years ago. Do you think that the, and the Bank of England used to be quite a small organisation, do you think the Bank of England is equipped to deal with all these things? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because I think that the bank has within it um, many excellent, committed, experienced uh, and skilled um, public servants. And I want to applaud the work that they do. Um, in terms of whether it is resourced, since we received, and I'm going to repeatedly say that, so forgive me, but the evidence we've received suggested that the resourcing is there. The question that I think that we as a committee are now debating in our minds is, what is the impact of all these extra have regards and objectives on the capacity of those who steer the Bank of England to, first of all, obviously make trade-offs, but secondly, not become distracted from their main tasks of uh, controlling inflation and financial stability. And whether it's all becoming very complex for them, and, and by the way, I would hasten to add, not just in the Bank of England, but in other central banks, this is also becoming apparent potentially, mm. so we're not alone in an outlier here, but to what extent within the Bank of England, this is potentially becoming a distraction from those main tasks. So I think that, candidly, it's not so much a question of resource, it's more a question of focus. Should there be a healthier level of, of overt criticism of the Bank of England from politicians? It's very controversial when it happens, and most politicians, I mean, if we think about the change, the most recent change of Prime Minister, there was quite a marked change in tone in description of, of the Bank of England. Should we should we have politicians who are more critical of, of the bank? Yeah, this is a great question. <laughs> it's one that um, uh, almost goes to the nub of it, which is how, given we have given unelected officials these new powers and we want the bank to be independent in the exercise of those powers can we at the same time ensure that those unelected officials are being held accountable and properly scrutinized without undermining the independence how is that balance being struck and this goes to the very heart of a lot of the issues we've been discussing um i would venture that from the evidence that we're hearing and it comes back to my first point um what we uh, are hearing is whether there is sufficient opportunity, forum and process within Parliament uh, to have these debates without it then spilling into a wholesale questioning of independence per se and without um, undermining the uh, power and discretion of those who are running the bank 
to do what they think is right to exercise their powers to meet their primary objectives, i.e. price stability, financial stability, without fear or favor. And getting this balance right is extremely difficult. But as I said, 25 years on, it's quite right, and especially given the environment we're now in, to be asking these questions. So you've hit the nail, one of the many nails, but I'd say a, a key point, very well, much squarely on the head there. As part of your evidence gathering, you've been speaking to uh, policymakers in the Federal Reserve, and I wonder, is that a better example of the sort of dynamic that we should be seeing between politicians and central bankers, where there is more open uh, criticism? Are there instructive lessons to be learned from how the Fed operates? Um, I won't get into, if I may, right now, saying uh, which uh, lessons we should learn from which um, central banks, because I think that will um, be a matter that the committee will want to discuss as we um, come to conclusions of our report. What I would say is two points. One is um, in the round, we heard consistently um, from our witnesses that the entire global central banking community um, uh, was essentially laboring under the view that inflation was transitory um, and uh, the Bank of England therefore was not alone in this. And we should be mindful of that when people come to criticize the bank. Um, the second point, um, as regards the Fed per se, yesterday we heard from Kevin Walsh, the former member of the Federal Reserve, um, who also had done a report into the Bank of England um, some years back. Um, he gave very interesting testimony to us, um, making the point that um, when it comes to the extension of a central bank's remit, um, politicians should be very careful that they aren't using a central bank to, and I'm using my words here, not his, to cover up for failures in public policy um, and to do things that essentially elected politicians should be doing. Now, I'm not saying that what I'm about to say is, is the view of Jay Powell, but it is interesting that Jay Powell, when he was asked whether the, central, the Fed should be doing more on climate some months back, he himself was saying that he didn't see that necessarily being part of the Fed's remit. Now, whether or not coming to your question, we should therefore be able to have a more robust debate in Parliament about these things. Um, again, let me repeat what I said. I think that a number of witnesses told us that there isn't sufficient opportunity for parliamentarians to scrutinise and um, hold uh, the Bank of England to account. And that is something I'm sure we'll want to reflect on. One of the things the Bank of England has been asked to prepare for uh, over the coming years is climate change and the, and the changes that will bring to the UK. There has been some criticism of that from, from certain quarters. Do, do you think it's right and proper that the Bank of England is, is working on climate change targets? Well, what I think is um, if, if the government of the day, it comes back to my point, if the government of the day wishes to make the Bank of England account uh, more uh, empowered, to take action in this sphere. Um, Parliament should absolutely be cognizant of that, be able to scrutinise that and be able to uh, make sure that ministers are held to account for why they're making that decision and how they think the Bank of England uh, should be discharging that responsibility. First question, therefore, is has all that happened? Second question, um, assuming that that box has been ticked, then is the Bank of England being held properly to account for its actions day in, day out by Parliament? And is Parliament fully aware of the impact and implications of the bank um, uh, um, 
doing doing what it might do. Now, again, just to repeat myself, that is another question here. And um, I'm not going to start jumping into um, conclusions, but I would also repeat, if he, even if all those conditions are met, a number of our witnesses were questioning whether the Bank of England and indeed any central bank should be doing this if, and this is the key point, if that is landing up with it is being distracted or risks it being distracted from its main tasks. So there are those three sort of checks, I would say. A, are the ministers uh, being held accountable for the decisions they're making to empower the central bank? B, is the Bank of England then being held properly accountable by elected representatives for discharging its powers? And C, even if although both those conditions are being met, is the bank um, uh, being able to focus on its main tasks and discharge those main tasks of controlling inflation and ensuring those financial stability? That was Lord Bridges, chair of the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee, speaking to myself and you in pots. And he has said that he will come back and talk to us about the report when it's published. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. A couple of thoughts, though, to end on. Uh, can't leave Shell and Centrica, of course, the owner of British Gas and their results. Uh, you know, uh, 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 can't leave those off the list. Shell's second quarter profits missed, um, but they have uh, talked about hiking their dividend and that they're going to do a share buyback of $3 billion. So look, I just wanted to highlight some of the negative reaction to those results. The IPPR, the think tank, talking about uh, Shell has proven its commitment to putting profits and shareholders over our planet. There was a lot of controversy with the oil and gas major. Oxfam, for example, also uh, saying that the profits come with a huge climate cost. So I I think sort of worth um, thinking about these. Uh, Centrica, which owns British Gas, which of course is the UK's biggest household energy supplier, I think they're going to get hit a lot in the coming yeah, I mean, few days with their results. When you look at the numbers, operating profit nearly tenfold up year on year, £969 million in the first half of the year, the highest ever first half result uh, for the British gas part of Centrica, which is, of course, the main bit of their business. But, you know, these are the sorts of things that do attract a lot of political they criticism do. as well in the context of what everyone's been paying for energy prices. Yeah, absolutely. And that's totally understandable. Having said that, if you're a shareholder, it is good news for you. And also you've got to think about the fact that they have not been profitable for five years. And this is largely to do with Ofgem and the price cap. So that's something else to think about when it comes to British Gas. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock, Alex Mortimer and Leanne Gerrans. And our audio engineers were Marufa Hussain and Rich Subnani. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. 
their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.